All right, well, I'd like to ask you if you would to open your Bibles to Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 9. We're going to look at a Bible story today. It's kind of where Jesus does something crazy. Well, not really, because Jesus never does anything crazy. But to people looking on, it just seemed like a bad idea. It's like, ah, why would you do that? I don't know why you would do that. But here's the sentence. Jesus did this on purpose. He had a purpose in doing this. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. There is a Bible app event for this message. If you have the Bible app and you open it up, you hit the little menu tab, and then you find an event near you. You can follow along that way, and it can be really helpful. I came across a book by D.A. Carson, one of my favorite authors, and it's called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and His Confrontation with the World. And that's been so helpful as I've been doing some of these New Testament things, even Thursday nights, looking at that book. I would recommend that book if you're doing something like this. And I owe him a great debt uh, through the past several months in my ministry here. Talking about a Bible story. It's a Bible story of uh, Jesus and some other people. And every story has good tension. It, it has a problem that you're having to solve. You never turned on a drama and there wasn't some kind of problem going on there. I can remember when I was a kid, and I've mentioned this before, I was a big Star Trek nerd. I was probably nine years old, and I loved Star Trek. I loved Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. And one time my dad told me there was no such thing as a Vulcan, and we had a big fight about that. I was that kid, right? And, and I love that. And I can remember thinking to myself, I'd like them to do an episode where they're not fighting any Romulans. The Klingons aren't being a problem. There's no crisis. It's just a day in the life on the, on the Starship Enterprise. You know why they never did that? Because it's not a good story. All stories have problems. They have tension. And this Bible story has one as well. And I want to show you that tension. But before we read the text, I kind of want to help you see some of the problems uh, before we take a look at the text. And, and the first problem is with a guy named Matthew. Now, Matthew is the guy who wrote the book of Matthew. He also is the guy who's spoken of in this story. And you're going to find out right away that he has a problem. And his problem is he's a tax collector. He doesn't see that as a problem. But it is a problem because tax collectors were not held in high esteem in ancient Israel. Now, we have tax collectors around here. I can remember Dewey. I used to take my check up to him because I was always late and the mail wouldn't get it there in time. And Dewey's a good guy. He's nothing like these guys, okay? And uh, that's a Kerwinsville guy. Um, These guys, the tax collectors in the first century, they were part of a system that was marked by corruption and not just a little bit of corruption. A tax collector came to you and looked at what you had and so on and, and levied a tax against it. And then he rounded it up any way he wanted to. He would round that up. And you might look at him and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's more tax than I should own. That's not nearly, I mean, I don't have nearly what the guy next door had. And you're just, you're ripping me off. And a good tax collector would say, yeah, what you can do about it? Because you couldn't do anything about it. He worked for the Roman government and he answered to nobody. And the Roman government just turned a blind eye to that. Yeah, just so you're getting the money to me, that's not a problem. So the tax system was corrupt and tax collectors, they were criminals. On top of that, tax collectors were treacherous. Treacherous means you should have a loyalty that you don't have, and instead you're stabbing people in the back. Rome Rome was the occupying country, the occupying government in Israel at that time. They'd conquered most of the world, and Israel was a host, an unwilling host, to the Roman government, the puppet king that they put in there, and the soldiers who tromped around in there. And you could rightly ask someone like Matthew or any other tax collector this question. How can you do this? How can you be so treacherous as to take money from your own people and give that money to our enemy? Tax collector. He's a traitor. Additionally, in being a tax collector, a problem that Matthew would have had is that he hung out with the wrong people. 
His life was marked by godlessness. Pagan people is who he hang out, hung out with, and pagan people do pagan things, things that a good Jewish man would not abide. The, the kind of people that Matthew might have invited to dinner would have included scam artists just like himself, It would have included perhaps harlots for a little entertainment and pleasure. It would have included people who were outside of the fringe of respectable Jewish life. No, they weren't even near the fringe of respectable Jewish life. And so you might ask Matthew the question, how can you do that? How can you eat the things they eat? And how can you say the things they say? And how can you drink the things they drink? And how can you do the things they do? And how can you hang out with them and disregard the entire law of God. And so a tax collector was in a perpetual state of uncleanness, that is, sinfulness. That's Matthew's problem. Let's talk about the Pharisees, because the Pharisees have a problem as well. They feel like they're the moral policemen. They're just making sure that everybody minds their P's and their Q's and every other letter that's in the Hebrew alphabet, right? They know that, that they need a vice squad because Rome sure isn't going to take care of that. And so as moral policemen of Israel, they are in the business of making sinful people feel as sinful as they can possibly make them feel. And that doesn't make them popular. They worked, however, to bully people and shame people into conforming to a standard of righteousness which was actually foreign to the law of Moses because it was so much more extreme than the law of Moses. It was pushing the law of Moses far further that it ever went. And part of their problem, at least in our story today, is that Jesus wasn't cooperating with the program. (laughs) I mean, Jesus isn't playing along. In fact, it seems to them that Jesus is actually advocating things that they would stand against. You can hear them speaking, right? Why in the world, why in the world do you risk defilement with these sinners? You know, If you hang out with garbage, Jesus, you start to smell like garbage. That's pretty crass, right? But that's where they would have been. And as it turned out, Jesus had a problem. They created a problem for Jesus. They tried to make trouble for him. It's interesting, this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are the synoptic gospels. They tell the same story from different perspectives. In in all three accounts, the Pharisees in this instant never go to Jesus. They never walk up to Jesus and say, hey, what are you doing hanging out with sinners? Why would you do that? Instead, they go to his followers. And I'm guessing that the reason they did this was to sow seeds of doubt and division among the followers. Scripture actually records their words. We're going to read it in a minute. They say to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a problem. So let's go ahead with that background. Let's go ahead and read the story. We're going to begin at verse 9. We're just reading, really, what is that? Five verses? 9 through 13. That's not five, is it? How many is that? Do the math. It's four. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and the disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this is a passage I think I could preach 20 sermons on, but I'm just going to give you one today. And what I want to kind of get you to see is, while we know this calling of Matthew would have been a blessing to Matthew, turned out well for him, I would say to you that the calling of Matthew by Jesus is a blessing to you and me as well. I want to give you a couple reasons why. One reason I say this is because Jesus' call to Matthew actually could bring us relief. And he says in that last verse that's on the screen, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now to me, those words, they kind of erase any spiritual anxiety that I might have about whether I'm good enough for Jesus. I love those words. I have not come to call the good people, but the bad people. Now, I would guess that the idea that Jesus is only here for the bad people and not the good people could be offensive to some of the people who think they're good people, right? It's offensive if you feel you're a little bit better than everybody else. I'm a little better than everybody else, and it kind of ticks me off that Jesus said that. It could be offensive if you feel that your sin isn't a big deal. Well, I sin, but it's pretty small compared to that guy and that girl. It's offensive if you feel like you're on the right path and others, well, you know, they're trying, but they're not on the right path. In short, it could be offensive if you're struggling with self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. If you think about it, we think of self-righteousness as a bad trait. Actually, if it were possible, it would be glorious, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could get our act together so well that we're perfect? I think that Jesus would be happy with that. He'd say, yeah, it's about time. Let's go. But I don't know about you. Yeah, I do know about you. You know doggone well it's not possible. And the Bible tells us it's not possible. Places like the book of Romans in chapter 3, verse 10, where it writes, it is written, there is no one righteous. No, not one is righteous, not even one. And still, self-righteousness runs full throttle in our world. I'll give you a couple examples. In every, in a sense, every religion except Christianity actually prizes self-righteousness. It's about you having your act together so that the God can be happy or the gods could be happy. Self-righteousness is what you're looking for. That'll get you some good karma. But the thing that makes Christian faith unique is what C.S. Lewis said, grace, grace. Self-righteousness doesn't fit with grace. Religions and religious people can embrace self-righteousness. I feel like the, the religious leadership of Jesus' day had completely derailed God's grace in the minds of the people of Israel and made Judaism into a, a religion where righteousness came by your good works. And they didn't depend on grace because they felt like they didn't really need grace. They were depending on their selves and their self-righteousness. It's not just religious people, though. Even irreligious people perhaps atheists, agnostics, they will show you by the things they say and they do that they have a sense of righteousness in and of themselves. You, you know the phrase, I've talked about it countless times, virtue signaling. You know what that is? Virtue signaling is saying, well, 
I think this, and I think everybody else should think this. And whether you post that on Facebook or whether you say that in a group of friends or whatever, it's kind of the equivalent of, here's the old-fashioned virtue signaling. Oh, well, I never, I never, I'm signaling that I'm virtuous, that I'm self-righteous. And that doesn't just belong to Christians. You see that in all of society. You see that in even atheists and agnostics. You, you see it in media, whether it's social media or commercial media. How could anyone say that? Did you hear what he said in that speech? I don't know how. Anyone could say that? I would never say that. Did you see what that person just posted? I would never post that. Never. That's just wrong. Ha. I don't post things like that because of how righteous my self is. Hmm. Self-righteousness. And you see self-righteousness in the cancel culture that comes from the right and comes from the left. We're not buying that product because we stand for righteousness. I'm going to give you a gold star and stick it right on your forehead. (laughs) That's what I want to do, right? In recent years, I have felt like self-righteousness, legalism, that once belonged to the church, now belongs to everyone. And there's nothing to be happy about in that. At first, I was kind of happy. Because I saw how destructive legalism, having these rules and regulations that were not even close to what was in the Bible, how destructive that was to the church family. I watched that happen for decades through my life. And I thought, oh, now that's getting into secular society. That's good. That's going to mess with them because it sure didn't mess with us. That's what my tiny little brain thought, right? But I really see how troubling it is because when you are absorbed with self-righteousness, you cannot admit your own morally broken nature, and Christ has little to nothing to offer you. So it's deeply troubling that that self-righteousness exists in our society. Because like Sisyphus, endlessly, what happened there? Where'd he go? There he is. I like him. Like Sisyphus, endlessly rolling that boulder up the mountain. It's always going to roll back on you. And the worst part is, people then find themselves crushed by their own boulder of self-righteousness. Jesus' call to Matthew has nothing to do with self-righteousness in Matthew. And he relieves Matthew of a responsibility to be righteous in order to be called by him. He relieves me of that. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, it says, it is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, Christ Jesus is our righteousness. Christ Jesus is our holiness. Christ Jesus gives us redemption. It's his righteousness, not my righteousness. And I don't know about you, but that's a huge relief for me. That's a huge relief for me. What a relief. And we see it if we look at Matthew's call. The call of Matthew brings us that relief. It brings us a sense of peace as well. It shows us that we can be who we were meant to be. Jesus isn't calling Matthew or you or me to be perfect. We, we don't need to be constantly striving to be perfect. We can rest in him. Man, how I wish I could bring that point home more strongly. Jesus is not calling you to be perfect. He's calling you to rely on his righteousness and find rest and peace in that. And as soon as I say it, The thought comes through some minds that says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about that place like Matthew 5, 48, where where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, if that thought kind of rumbled through your brain, I want to ask you three questions. The first question is this. Do you really think that when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, that he is demanding perfect, sinless righteousness from you on the order of God the Father? Do you really think that Jesus is asking you that? And if you do, let me ask you a second question. Do you really think Jesus, who pronounced woes on the religious leaders of his day for their placing religious burdens on people's back that were absolutely impossible for them to carry, he placed woe to you, Pharisees, that placed these, these rules and, these, and these, these loads on people's back. Woe to you. Do you really think he'd turn around and do that to you now? How does that make sense? And even if you're like, well, yeah, I think he did that. Here's the third question. How are you doing with it? I'm not doing real good with it. That word perfect, perfect, by the way, it comes from the Greek word telos. It it refers to being complete. It has nothing to do with being sinless. Nothing. If it was sinless, then Jesus would have said, be sinless, therefore, as your heavenly Father is sinless. And so far from being offended by Jesus' statement that I have come to call, not to call, let me read that over again. Far from being offended by Jesus' statement, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, Christ followers find peace in that. We find peace because Christ calls people like you and me, Matthew. We find peace because he meets us where we are and doesn't demand that we come through these specific hoops in order to get to him. We find peace because he doesn't insist that we be perfect before turning to him or after turning to him. He opens his heart and receives us when we come to him. And that changes everything. You see, Jesus' call to Matthew brings a sense of acceptance of him and what he offers. It helps you accept yourself, who you are, so that you can discern who you can become. Did you hear that sentence? It helps you accept yourself, who you are, so that you can discern who you can become. And he transforms you by his call. Just those two words, follow me, had a transformative power in Matthew's life. It's like Jesus' words are supernatural or something. Well, you know, in John 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he speaks of how our lives can change through sanctification. And he talks about God's words. He says, sanctify them with truth. Thy word is truth, the King James said. So God's word has a sanctifying, a cleansing, a transformative power in our life. I recently saw this when I was planning a funeral with a family who didn't have a church home. I love to do that. I love to show them the love of Christ. I'll send an email out to you guys and say, pray for this family. I'm going to try to help them. Thank you for praying. There are times that I have been engaged in that ministry that I just sense the presence of God in ways that I could never have dreamed of before. And I believe a big part of that is your prayers. So I was sitting with this family. They didn't have a church home. I have about a dozen questions that I ask them about the deceased. Among those questions, I also ask them about the funeral service. And I say to them, is there any particular passage of scripture that you have in mind that you would like me to read? And often they don't. Sometimes they do. This particular family I was with, they, they said, not, not offhand. I said, well, what if I kind of gave you a couple samples and then you could pick? And they said, okay. I said, how about John 14? And then I started to quote it. But before I quoted it, I said this. How about John 14? This is a passage of scripture where Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and he's leaving his disciples behind and he knows they will carry a heavy grief at this loss when they see him suffer and die on the cross. So he says these words to them. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to you and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. I was not two sentences into that before I noticed they were crying. They'd been kind of sniffling before that. But as they heard the words of Jesus and the promise and the hope that was there, his words transformed something inside them. And they were just weeping. It was a beautiful moment. And I paused and I looked at them and I said, I love the word of God. I love how it speaks to our hearts. And it lets me know how deeply he cares for us. (laughs) The word of God. The words of Jesus. They bring us peace because they help us accept who we are and they transform us along the way. His call to Matthew fills my heart with gratitude. He calls so graciously. And his call to Matthew fills my heart with humility. It gets rid of the arrogance in me because I know Matthew has nothing going for him that Jesus would call him, neither do I. And his heart, his call to Matthew, lets me know it's safe to come to him. That his yoke is easy. His teaching, his burden is light. And he calls us, this call helps us to accept others as well. If you've been around me, you know I have this line. When we see people doing dumb things, I don't know if you ever see people doing dumb things, but when we see people doing dumb things, I'll say something like this. I don't understand the humans. I just don't understand the humans. They're so stupid. Sometimes I'll say that. I try not to say they're stupid, but you know they are. I kind of act as though I'm not one of them, right? And that's just silly. I'm just being silly. I'm just having a good time, right? But God calls us to love others, even our enemies. And I feel like the call that God gives to Matthew in this passage helps me to accept others because I love how D.A. Carson phrases it. He says, Christians can never afford to adopt haughty stances toward other sinners. Do you see the word other there? (laughs) He doesn't say... Christians can never afford to adopt haughty stances towards sinners. You know why he says other sinners? Because Christians are sinners. If you say you're not a sinner, the the epistle of 1 John says the truth is not in you. The truth is not in you. We're all sinners. And followers of Jesus can accept others because, and I'll put it on the screen, what Carson says, Christians know that they are never anything more than poor beggars telling others where there's bread. That's what we are. And that helps us accept others because it gives us a sense of humility and a sense of compassion for those who need the bread. When Jesus calls Matthew, he gives us relief. He gives us peace. And Jesus' call to Matthew gives us hope. Through the years, I've shared the gospel with a number of people. Perhaps you have as well. Sometimes the response is this, and it's odd to me, this response occurs more often than I would anticipate it occurring. The person that I'm talking to privately, personally, regarding the gospel of Christ and how to be saved, their response sometimes is this. You know, I'm just not good enough for Jesus to save me. And I'll be honest with you, early on, my answer to that, to that concern was wrong. I used to say when they said, I'm just not good enough, I used to say, yes, you are. God don't make no junk. 
You're good. <laughs> Praise God, I can only remember doing that a couple times, and I wish I could forget those. Because that's the wrong answer. How do you answer someone when they say, well, I understand that Jesus died for me, and I understand that if I turn away from myself and my sin and trust him, I'll be forgiven and I'll have a, a new life. But Pastor Steve, I just don't feel worthy of God's love. I, I don't feel like I'm good enough to be saved. The answer to that question is, you are absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's great because you are the kind of person that Jesus wants to save. The one who knows he's not good enough because if you believe you're good enough, you're not going to want to be saved anyway because you believe you're good enough, you don't need to be saved. And Jesus doesn't have that for you. Jesus talks about this over and over again. Scripture talks about it. I mean, Jesus is doing a Sermon on the Mount. He's just getting warmed up when he's doing the Beatitudes. So right at the very start, he says this sentence. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we ponder, we scratch our heads, we say, what do all those Beatitudes mean? This is the easiest one of all of them. This is the one that says, if you are poor in spirit, in other words, if you know that spiritually you got very little going for you, that you are morally bankrupt, that you cannot possibly be good enough to get into the kingdom of God, you know that you are, that you are a sinner before a holy God and a subject of God's wrath, that's the key. Because that's where you let go of your self-righteousness, and that's when you can be saved, and the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Are you following that? Are you following that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. When you realize your moral bankruptcy, that's when you hear the call of Jesus, and you have the hope that yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Matthew was not a good man. (laughs) He was the man, however, that Jesus wanted. Jesus didn't want him, have you seen the movie Taken? You know, that Liam Neeson movie, Taken? (laughs) Don't you love the phone call in that? When he talks to the guy who took his daughter? I wish I could do a Liam Neeson impersonation, but it kind of comes out like something between Asian and Indian, so I won't do that. (laughs) Think of Liam Neeson with an Indian accent. It it doesn't work. So let me just read it to you. (laughs) He says, I have a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career. And you know what he was. He was muscle for the federal government, a hunter of bad guys. I will hunt you down is what he's saying there. I want to say this. Matthew was not a good man. He was, however, the man that Jesus wanted, probably because he was not a good man. And that is not to say that Jesus is thinking, he has a particular set of skills, skills that I might just need. I'm going to take him. Matthew probably has skills like that because of the kind of life that he lived. But Jesus didn't have some kind of dirty work that he needed Matthew to do. Matthew had a lifetime of dirty work that he needed Jesus to fix. And Jesus was there to fix that. And he wanted Matthew Jesus wanted Matthew because Jesus knew, I am his only hope. I am his only hope. I mean, how much hope of heaven does a man with a resume like Matthew, corrupt, treacherous, godless, how much hope of heaven does he have? Jesus called Matthew to give Matthew hope. It's not just for Matthew, though. You know, the call of Matthew gives hope to you and me, to anyone. What does Pastor Bernie say? Hope has a name. Wouldn't it be neat if I could impersonate Pastor Bernie? (laughs) Hope has a name. 
His name is Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, he gives you hope. He gives you hope of forgiveness. I know what guilt feels like. I know what being forgiven feels like. That feels really good. Think about this, though. Matthew, (laughs) he's the bad guy in this story, criminal, traitor, perpetual state of uncleanness. Where in the world does anyone like that go to find forgiveness? Jesus. Jesus. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. May I ask you a question about this crazy little thing called guilt? (laughs) Do you struggle with it? Do you ever feel guilt about a failed relationship? Do you ever feel guilt about the way you wasted some time or the way you spent some money or about the things you're not doing with your talents? Do you ever feel guilt regarding your parenting, the things you should have done, the things you didn't do? Do you ever feel guilt regarding your life? If you feel guilt, Jesus is calling you, just like he called Matthew. And it doesn't matter what you feel guilty about, Jesus is calling you, just like he called Matthew. He wants to free you from your guilt. And he can do that because he and he alone purchased your freedom when he died on the cross for your guilt. And so you talk to him. You take your guilt to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus gives the hope of forgiveness. And Jesus, in the call of Matthew, gives the hope of belonging. We know that Matthew did not choose to follow Jesus just for a short time. You know, there are people that they... they <laughs> I said this one time, Dave Clark mentioned it to me. One time I was speaking to, uh, the house was full because it was a wild game dinner, and I was sharing the gospel, gave them an opportunity to pray to receive Christ as their Savior. And I said, now some of you, you do this every year, and for some of you, it lasts you the whole way to the parking lot. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things. Clark says, whoa, that was harsh, Pastor Steve. How about it, Dave? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't just last Matthew to the parking lot. We know that Matthew didn't just follow Jesus for a few minutes. He followed Jesus for three years, watching closely and listening carefully to what he did and what he taught. Matthew followed Jesus to the cross. He followed him to the grave. He saw him at the resurrection. He was there for the ascension. Matthew left behind a a life of corruption, a life of betrayal, a life of hedonism, to follow Jesus. He followed Jesus thoroughly and closely enough that he wrote one of four reliable books we have as biographies of the life of Jesus. The book we're reading from today, Matthew. Written by (laughs) Matthew. Why? Because Jesus changed his life with two words, follow me. And he found belonging with Jesus and with his followers. Jesus gives a hope of belonging to him. And in the call of Matthew, 
Jesus gives the hope of growing, of becoming someone different. I have grandkids and they're not quite to this stage, but I know it's coming. When will I be grown up? You remember when you were a kid, guys, and maybe you were nine years old? When am I going to be able to hunt? When am I going to get that driver's license? When am I going to be able to get out of this house? I want to grow up. I want to grow up. Peter Pan didn't want to, but most of us want to. Jesus gives you the hope of growing spiritually and changing. I mentioned before, this story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. It's very similar in Mark to what we read from Matthew. Luke adds a line. I'll I'll put it on the screen. Matthew records Jesus as saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke records, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see the difference? Jesus is calling this guy named Matthew to a better life, to a changed life, to a transformed life, a life that he wanted and maybe didn't even know he wanted, and a life that when he took it, he never looked back. When I was a teen at family camp at Mahaffey, um, my youth group leader showed up one, one day. His name was Bill Burnside. If anyone knows him, he's from around here somewhere. I'd sure like to get in touch with him. So Bill showed up. He played his guitar a little bit. We had a good time visiting together. And then in the evening, I said to him, so you coming to the youth tabernacle tonight? You know, he's 20-some years old. He said, no, I'm going to go to the main tabernacle tonight. And I said, maybe I'll go there. I'll go with you. So I decided to go with him. We walked into the back of the building. We were pretty early. He passed up some perfectly good seats right in the back. And then he went a little bit further, got about halfway down. He passed up some really nice seats in the middle. And then he went further down, and he's like two seats, three rows from the front maybe. And he passed those up, and you know where he sat? Right there, right in front of the speaker in that seat. And I sat beside him, and I said, what are we doing here? (laughs) I mean, really, what are we doing in the front row? And Bill said to me, I want to be in the front row because I want to make sure I get whatever it is God has for me. I don't want to miss it. I find it easier to pay attention when I'm sitting right here in the front row. Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. I'd invite you all to sit in the front row, but there's only 13 chairs here. And I'm not really inviting you to sit in the front row because you know that's not the point, right? You know, the point is, (laughs) the point is, listen for the call of Christ. Hear the call of Christ. Hunger for the change the call of Christ can make in your life. I'm asking you to to consider the call of Matthew and the hope that it offered Matthew and take that hope as your own from Christ. I am praying for you the prayer of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 23, where it says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you, that means cleanse and set apart. May he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. That is what happened to Matthew. That is what I want for you and me. Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. 
And he says that to you and to me. The call offers us relief from trying so hard to be worthy. Because you can't be worthy. And you don't need to be worthy. And if you feel you are worthy, it's not for you. He calls us to that relief from trying to be worthy. And the call offers us that peace. And knowing that God wants you. God wants you. And the call offers hope that God will work in you. I can guarantee you that any any of us that have any spiritual preceptivity at all, when we look at our hearts, see things in our hearts that we wish weren't there. (laughs) Hope of the call of Matthew says, Jesus can take care of those things. He will help you change. He never says, repent, and then says, figure it out by yourself. He says, repent. Let me help you. If you've never answered that call, it's possible you go to church a long time and never in your heart say, I need your righteousness, Jesus, because my righteousness stinks. I want to trust you. I get it. If you've never personally answered that call, do it this morning in the quietness of your own heart, in a moment we're going to pray, and in the quietness of your own heart, just say, yes, I need your righteousness. I will follow you. If you have answered that call, but it's grown stale, (laughs) speak to him. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. Forgive me for not doing what I should have been doing right along. Here I am sitting in the front row, (laughs) not at Kerbinsville Alliance from a happy camp necessarily, but with your posture in such a manner that you are all in. I want to invite you to do that as we pray together this morning. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your call. We often use that word call in, in terms like a missionary call. He's called to missions or she's called to missions. And that's accurate. But today, the call we're talking about, God, is a call that you make when you just say, come to me. You say it so eloquently in in Matthew, where you say, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. My yoke, my burden, they are light, they are easy. That doesn't mean there's not a cost to following you. That doesn't mean there's no, no difficulties along that path. But what it means is that we can have relief, we can have peace, we can have hope as we turn our hearts to you. I pray for each one who's standing here. If anyone's standing here, it's like, I've never, never turned to you, Jesus. I pray that in the quietness of their heart, that they would speak to you and say, Jesus, that's what I need. I understand that you died for my sins. Thank you for doing that. I trust you and I will follow you. And as they express that to you in the quietness of their mind and in their heart, I know you will hear them. And I know that their life will be transformed. May they follow you closely, faithfully. I pray for others who are standing here who maybe made that decision in the past, but really... It's kind of become stale, isn't what it should be.
Maybe we got caught in the trappings of religion or maybe we just allowed it to become mundane. Oh God, forgive us for that. May we renew that commitment to hear your call, to heed your call, and to follow you. And may we reap the benefit that comes with that. The relief from trying to be righteous on our own. The peace that comes with knowing we're accepted by you. And the hope that comes with seeing you transform our lives. This is our prayer, Father. We ask you to make it so. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.